This is the O'Reilly Bots Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm Pete Skamarak. Our guest today is Richard Socher. He's the chief scientist at Salesforce, where he runs Salesforce Research. And before that, he was the founder and CEO of Metamind, which was a deep learning startup that Salesforce acquired back in 2016. And I should also mention that Richard leads uh, Stanford's terrific uh, deep learning for NLP course, uh, 224D. It's a fantastic resource and um, has made a big impact on the community. Welcome, Richard. Good to have you on. Hi. Thanks for having me. So we'd love to have a just a general conversation today about sort of where deep learning is headed, where NLP is headed, uh, what you see as some interesting applications and, and what you're excited about. So I wonder if, uh, yeah, start by telling us a little bit about the kinds of problems you're thinking about, uh, you know, these days at, at Salesforce. Sure. So I think I kind of wear two hats. Uh, one is on the research side and pure, pure research side. And the other one is more on the applied side and bringing AI actually to everybody. And that's very aligned with, with sort of my goals uh, in life and my career, which is to push the state of the art in artificial intelligence through research and then make it widely and easily accessible. And so on the research side, I'm very excited uh, about natural language understanding and often using deep learning models uh, to push that forward. And language understanding is kind of tricky. It uh, really encompasses a lot of different kinds of skills. Uh, you might include machine translation in that. Uh, certainly, question answering is a big part. Ideally, uh, we would have eventually computers that we can ask arbitrary questions to and, and get reasonably correct answers uh, most of the time. And so I actually think this question answering framework is one that we can cast a lot of different NLP problems into. I might want to ask the system, what's the translation of that sentence into this other sen into this other language? So in some sense, machine translation can be cast as a question answering problem as well. And what that means, though, is that we have to have a system that builds uh, on top of other tasks continuously. So it basically keeps getting smarter as you add new kinds of tasks to it. And this is kind of a long term research agenda and research goals, a uh, research goal that I have, uh, which is joint multitask learning where a single model keeps getting smarter and smarter. Because I think as a community in deep learning, we've gotten really good at taking a single model and a single task and a single data set and just optimizing it really, really well and doing quite well on any single task. But that's not how humans learn, right? People learn continuously. And when I learn a new task, that doesn't mean I want to forget all the past tasks that I'm able to do. Along those lines, uh, when if you asked people a few years ago who's doing interesting work in deep learning and tax, you were one of the few names that popped out. And there, so it feels like there was a wave of work in image recognition uh, recently, and then in the last couple of years, it seems like text is text is the new Im uh, the new image, right? <laughs> So are you, uh, would you agree with that? And is, like, what, what is the mix? It looks like at Salesforce, you're actually doing a combination of things, both involving images and text. Yeah, yeah, it's actually, I think it's a very uh, correct observation. It's, it's really, in the beginning, uh, deep learning had focused on sort of continuous inputs, uh, largely pixels or 
voice features. Uh, and now that we're pretty good at voice recognition as a, as a community, as a field, and we're very good at identifying the main objects and images, which is what a lot of people care about in computer vision, though it is good and useful to note that uh, computer vision has a lot of other complex tasks that we might not be able to do as well yet as humans. So, you know, certain things in radiology where you have very few training examples uh, or complex scene segmentation and 3D understanding and uh, things like that, or being able to predict uh, the next sequence of events uh, in a complex high uh, frame rate and high resolution video. So there are several problems in computer vision that we can't yet solve, but we can solve, you know, the sort of standard object classification so well. And that is a large part of what a lot of companies want to do that many deep learning researchers kind of assumed were good enough on that front and have now uh, joined uh, me and, and Colibert and Weston and uh, really, you're right, like very few other folks in 2009, 2010 uh, in, in NLP. And it's super exciting. Now there's a lot of progress that we're seeing uh, thanks to deep learning in natural language processing. Natu uh, machine translation is getting a lot better. When you look at uh, the latest sort of data sets that are coming out, there's not really a single image net type data set in NLP because NLP encompasses all these different types of tasks. Some are, say, machine translation, others question answering. Uh, yet again, sentiment analysis is very popular. Uh, so there are a lot of different kinds of tasks. Some require visual understanding. So like visual question answering is another interesting task. There are a lot of different tasks inside NLP. Uh, and one of the ones that I'm most excited about is question answering. So one of the data sets uh, and, and sort of competitions that have come out also actually out of Stanford is the Stanford question answering data set, uh, where we're currently number one. Uh, and a lot of other uh, companies and uh, universities and, and research institutes are working on this uh, task too, including Microsoft and Google and IBM and Allen Institute of AI and CMU and actually also interestingly Singapore Management University. Hmm. Um, and on this task, when you look at all the top solutions, the top 10, they're all deep learning based. And I think we'll, we'll see that kind of uh, dominance when it comes to single task performance um, in a lot of a lot of different subtasks in NLP. So one of the things that's this is a topic we've talked quite a bit about, not so much in the details of the deep learning algorithms yet, and we're excited to get uh, get deeper into that in this conversation. Um, but when you think about the applications and most general uh, users' experience with conversational interfaces uh, or textual, whether it be via text or voice. Um, there's this uncanny valley and where things seem to break down. I, it seems like there's two categories of things that haven't really entered most models, right? So if you have a very explicit uh, question about um, a paragraph, right? So you can ask, uh, you know, John and Steve, if the paragraph says John and Steve were in a boat, and then you ask who's in the boat, right? Uh, we we're, It feels like we're approaching a reasonable quality for things like that. but when it comes to common sense, like, is the water wet, right? Uh, huh. that, that, that can be difficult given just that text for most of these systems, whether it's IBM Watson or other, other, um, other applications you can use right now. Um, and the other one would be context, right? So if I, if I have a message, uh, you know, if I pick up on some audio message or recording uh, of somebody saying, can I cut you? It's very different if they're waiting in line um, for for a coffee versus if they have a knife in their hand, right? 
Um, and so it feels like, does that match your, your feeling like deep learning is doing well uh, kind of on the surface of some of these problems right now? I think that's a good observation, and I think you're mostly right. We we are getting better in some grounding of uh, certain semantics and certain types of meaning. And by grounding, I often mean visual grounding or grounding in sort of factual databases. Uh, but it's still very much in its infancy. And when as soon as we get to encoding common sense, knowledge is really hard. Uh, and we don't have a good way that allows us to both have very discrete and almost always true facts, like if something drops, it usually falls afterwards, and then it hits the ground, or something like that, uh, versus something that's more fuzzy. You know, some people like vanilla ice cream. Is that the fact that we need to encode in the system? What if they like strawberry ice cream? You know, there, there's so many fuzzy things uh, that, that are not always true, and it's hard to encompass all of them and then have a QA system that really asks those questions. And maybe that's a good segue to come back to my second part of, of my current job and interest, which is to make this technology actually easily accessible. And that's kind of a much more applied and practical uh, role uh, that I have here at Salesforce. And, and it's really... Uh, it boils down to a lot of NLP problems, some computer vision problems also. Uh, so e-commerce uh, has some interesting vision problems. Medical space uh, has still interesting vision problems that might not be interesting from a research perspective in the sense that they're just classification of images. But the classification happens to be, you know, that CT scan having an intracranial hemorrhage uh, or showing intracranial hemorrhage uh, in the brain. And if you can identify that very quickly, you might save somebody's life. Uh, and so there's some interesting problems in the image domain, but really a lot of them are also on the textual side. And there we think in uh, you know understanding email very well. Email is actually still used much more than bots, mm -hmm. and in some ways can be seen as a very slow conversation um, that has delay, but that delay kind of allows uh, more things to be done and you can be more helpful because it doesn't have to be real time right away. Uh, and so emails, of course, are used a lot in service, uh, but also in marketing. And so those are two areas that, that we're very passionate about uh, and hope to be able to help people make them more efficient by answering, for instance, simple service requests very quickly and very in a very personalized way with, uh, with automated email response systems. Uh, mm -hmm. And then a little bit also in sales where you can basically try to understand based on a lot of email conversations, which are the most likely people that would actually want your product and you actually want to sell it to them more efficiently. And so I think from emails, you can then kind of almost smoothly interpolate to bots, right? If you're if you, an email comes in that asks a very specific question, you're able to answer that email very accurately. Then if that if similar kinds of questions would come in through some life agent uh, or, or bot interface, uh, you would also likely be able to answer some of those questions. So I'm curious about sort of how you imagine these um, AI-enabled Q&A systems uh, working, to go back to that for just a moment. Do you see it as, as kind of you have a, a platform that can understand questions and then add on modules that can answer different kinds of questions? Or is the QA format uh, kind of a... Um, you know, inherently able to learn and add on new capabilities. So maybe it can answer questions about images for a little while, and then it can sort of train itself to answer questions, um, you know, about sound. I think we're going to see a transition in how QA systems will work. I think in the beginning, they will likely start with simply identifying a couple of common questions that they see, 
And it's almost a classification system that starts, uh, that the whole system sort of starts out with. And after a while, when you basically chop away the most common classify, easily classifiable questions, and you have sort of default chunks of text that can describe uh, the answer quite well. So for instance, a link to a knowledge base article where you just kind of say, hey, your answer is found right here. Mm -hmm. you know, here's the main uh, sub phrases or the main paragraphs from that website that answer your question. Uh, I think once you, once you tackle those well, then you can move on to more complex things. And those can be actually more conversational. But I think we're nowhere near a place where we can give free form answers to arbitrary questions. And it's actually a really interesting research problem, right? Because sometimes questions might actually require you to go into a database to look up certain facts about the order history of, of a client or the kinds of the purchase history or the previous issues and other systems that they have bought, right? And can get very complex very quickly. And if you don't have a good way to now interface and ground this conversation in the actual semantics and of, of that customer or that person that you're chatting with, it's going to be hard to do it. Even simpler things like booking flights, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't know if... It's it's quite tricky if you want to say, oh, I want to change that flight. And now you actually have a system that automatically goes into a database and makes a couple of really major decisions. But I think that's obviously the future. I think eventually that's, that's where we want to be. And then the other tricky bit is that uh, if it's a conversational system, sometimes speech isn't the best way to present information, right? Here's a long list of, of flights or something. I don't want you to spend now 20 minutes listing them with all their details. I want to maybe just see uh, a little tile and I can now swipe through that tile. And likewise, so, so I think having some visual components uh, sometimes can, can help conversational agents a lot too. Right. Plus, there's always the risk that uh, an AI-based agent will sort of do something that uh, you know satisfies all the restrictions that the model has developed for itself, but that makes no sense to a human. And so you need some final way of communicating it back to the to the user that's useful, right? Yeah, Rich, Richard. So what you're describing it, it um, when we we're we were back at um, or I'm sorry, when I was back at LinkedIn, um, that that wave of machine learning, I think at all the big Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, everybody is much more towards like supervised classifiers, um, ranking and relevance, uh, recommendations. Uh, now, now we're entering into a wave of understanding whether it's images or or text. You referred to um, some results uh, where you were actually beating some of these other leading researchers and companies. But um, one of the papers you put out recently um, that deals with uh, the question answering is on dynamic co-attention networks. And one of the promising things about that, it sounds like, is that uh, rather than a single static representation of a document, it's able to interpret the document differently depending on the nature of the question and the task. Can you say a little bit more about how that works and, and why it's better? Sure. Uh, so you're right. This is, uh, I think, the the model. So this is for sure the model uh, that gets this number one uh, rank in the Stanford Question Answering data set, which I think is an interesting data set. It's reasonably large, has 100,000 uh, question and answer pairs, and needs to extract the answer from uh, a given uh, small document or long paragraph. And the way it does this in our case is to actually reinterpret the document in the light of the question and then go back and even reinterpret the question in light of the document, which is kind of interesting <laughs> now that you mentioned this example of can I cut you, 
Um, <laughs> this is actually kind of the way, right? You might reinterpret that question to depending on the context, in this case, the document in which you saw that question. That's actually a great example uh, for <laughs> why we want to have these co-attention networks and not just paying attention to the input itself. Now, mm -hmm. the co-attention is the first piece. It's uh, essentially a set of matrix multiplications, which is, is, uh, is the case for a lot of these deep learning models, uh, followed by several types of nonlinearities. And then the second interesting piece is a dynamic pointer decoder. And so why is it dynamic and what's a pointer? So instead of trying to use a standard classification mechanism where we basically have a softmax that just outputs specific words and each word is essentially a class and that's your classifier, which is how most machine translation systems, for instance, work. Uh, this model actually outputs a range of two pointers, a beginning and an end pointer. And then basically the answer is are the words in between these two pointers. And now that has some limitations, right? So it couldn't, for instance, answer questions even with simple things like yes, no. Because mm -hmm. if yes, no was not a word in that paragraph, then it uh. couldn't output it. So there's a limitation, but we also have another paper uh, from Stephen Meredy on pointer sentinel networks that actually learns how to combine pointers with softmaxes uh, and, and with classifiers. So then you have the best of both worlds. But those two lines of work and projects were happening at the same time. And so they haven't yet been merged. And you don't really need to merge it because the Stanford question answering data set is constructed in a way such that every single answer is a subphrase in the input document. And so that particular model in competition doesn't require the softmax piece. But long story short, why is it dynamic? It's dynamic because after it made the first attempt at giving the answer, it actually goes over the inputs again and allows itself to fix uh, and, and make sure the answer is actually correct. And that's that's why it's dynamic. It actually outputs uh, the right uh, the phrases multiple times and then can sometimes, and we observe this and shows in the paper, can actually sort of fix its own output and then uh, correct it and finally give a slightly more accurate answer. And, you know, all these various tricks, they all help a couple of percentage points here and there, but that's how overall the system got uh, over 80%. So uh, you've also uh, published a, an important paper in the last uh, few months on uh, what you call uh, quasi-recurrent neural networks, um, QRNNs. Uh, they're, they're an advancement, you, you say, in some applications over long short-term memory networks, uh, LSTMs. I wonder if you could just sort of explain in, in very abstract terms. Um, what a QRNN is. I want to give a shout out here. So the, the first authors of the Stanford uh, question answering um, model, uh, the dynamic co-attention networks were Tseming Xiong and Victor Chong. Uh, and and I'm, I'm the third author. And on the quasi-recurrent quasi neural networks, it's James Bradbury and Stephen Meredy, um, two of our uh, researchers here at, at Salesforce Research who've done uh, phenomenal work. And I particularly like the QRNN project because what we've observed in a lot of our deep learning models, and this is kind of a, a step back of why, why is it relevant to do this work, uh, in the end, a lot of our basic modules, the basic Lego building blocks, if you will, of deep learning NLP models are these recurrent neural network type models like LSTMs, like GRUs, gated recurrent units, and, and a whole host of other sort of related models. And when you when you realize that's a basic building block and you keep reusing it, you better you better look into it and, and evaluate whether you can improve it in any kind of way. And what we've observed in deep learning for vision is that parallelism is really a very powerful aspect of convolutional neural network architectures. Mm -hmm. And it's that idea of parallelism uh, that 
we wanted to incorporate also into uh, into recurrent neural networks. Now, the problem with recurrent neural networks is that the next output uh, always depends on the previous output. Uh, and so it's very hard to parallelize that. And so the idea here is that, well, you can have some computation at every single time step, and that you can actually pre-process in parallel. And then instead of having a matrix multiplication that has weights uh, to do the temporal connections, you actually have an element-wise operation, which is much simpler. Uh, mm. And what was surprising to us is how well it actually still works. On language modeling, we get slightly better improved performance. On sentiment uh, analysis, we get slightly better improvements in LSTMs. And yet we can get, depending on some of the hyperparameters, like the batch size of training uh, and others, and how many features you have, we can get between two to three X to 16 X uh, speed improvements and some better interpretability. And so I'm, yeah, I'm very excited by these, these quasi recurrent neural networks. They really exploit parallelism both at the single time step level as well as the feature level. And you parallelize over time steps uh, in the first one and over feature channels in the second one. Hmm. And you keep uh, switching between the two. I think of parallelism as being important for images because you have uh, a lot of bytes going through uh, you know, to, to interpret images. Is that the same reason that it's important for text for NLP? Is it just sort of speed or is there some other aspect of parallelism that's, that's important? I think it's really only speed, but it's yeah, it's speed with the current uh, computing architectures that we have. So particularly GPUs, multi-core uh, processing systems, they really benefit from parallelism, or the models that have been have parallelism benefit a lot more from multi-core architectures. What what type of frameworks are you using? Another thing that's been really interesting to watch in the last couple of years has with, with especially with deep learning is how transferable a lot of the results are. And, um, you know, for in science for decades, uh, it's been an issue. Uh, reproducibility of research has been an issue. Uh, people not providing their code, not providing their data. And it seems like in this sub-community, especially, people are very good about um, building on each other's frameworks and, and uh, putting models into practice quickly. What are, are you using? And, and obviously, the big companies are behind some of this as well. You've got Google and Microsoft and everybody putting out frameworks. Are, are you using, uh, for example, like TensorFlow and Keras? Or like, do you have uh, other in-house frameworks that you use? Uh, it's a very good observation. I do think we have to really thank uh, some of the leading uh, early members of the deep learning community, uh, folks like uh, Yosha Bengio, Jan LeCun, Jeff Hinton, have really been very open about their research. Uh, and thanks to them and their, their efforts, the whole community is now very open. And I think it's, it's part of the reason why the progress in AI has been so incredible and is, is, is able to scale and now even accelerate uh, more and more, right? And folks like Jeff Dean, who, who are very good about open sourcing uh, their tools that then help other people to replicate uh, results more quickly. And another powerful item here that deep learning uh, has almost inherently is unlike other machine learning algorithms like graphical models, when you write down the model for a deep learning system, you have a pretty good idea on how to optimize it, right? It's generally going to work reasonably well with SGD and some of the standard tricks like momentum and so on, um, and maybe maybe Atom and some other optimizers. But in general, you know how to take derivatives of feed-forward neural network architectures, right? And 
that that is, I think, a technical uh, and social kind of aspect of deep learning. Anybody can write these things out now, and thanks to TensorFlow and before Theano and also Torch, you you really can now quickly go from oh this is my model to oh let's see what that model actually does in real life. You don't have to derive complex variational inference uh, equations like you had to do uh, in graphical models. And so, so that allows people and lowers the bar of how many people, uh, lowers the bar of sort of the required skills to use and develop new AI algorithms. That's the first thing. And then uh, you're right also that it's great that companies are putting weight behind open source frameworks. Um, to answer your, your original question, I was hoping we would all use TensorFlow uh, <laughs> in at least the NLP subgroup uh, in, in my research group here. Uh, however, um, we had uh, we had some folks who wanted to have multi GPU parallelism and, and had very large data sets uh, in machine translation, and uh, this was uh, several like early last year, and uh, TensorFlow didn't have it at the time, uh, and I think they've improved since. Uh, but then we basically switched to yet another deep learning framework called Chainer. Um, mm -hmm. like ball and chain uh, chainer. Mm -hmm. It's uh, by a small Japanese startup called Preferred Networks. Uh, and really, uh, the whole research group has now switched uh, to chainer. The beauty of chainer is that it allows to have very simple if statements and sort of uh, hmm. switches inside your training and testing code so that depending on your input, you can have different computational graphs, uh, if you will. And that allows us to really push outside of the convex hull of existing models. So I, we felt a little constrained. Uh, I think TensorFlow is still phenomenal when you want to take existing models and recombine them in interesting new ways. But if you really want to break out of the convex hull of anything that's currently existing, and that's kind of what we're trying to do in the research group, then uh, Chainer allowed us to do that more quickly. And also, and we show this in the code that we published together with the QRNN that's on our blog, uh, you can quite easily incorporate uh, CUDA kernels and C++ low-level CUDA kernels in the middle of, of your Python code and uh, and really gain a lot of speed. So it's a, it's a great, yeah, it's a it's very flexible model. So you, you make a really good point about uh, the increasing accessibility of uh, deep learning and, and neural nets, especially as uh, TensorFlow has come out and it it has excellent documentation. It's reasonably easy to get started. It's kicked some of the other you know frameworks into uh, becoming more accessible as well, and just generally made the field you know more competitive. Um, so so now you have a lot of people who are capable of uh, implementing someone else's model or kind of getting started, possibly tweaking someone else's model. But still, you have a very, you know, comparatively few uh, people who are capable of writing new models from scratch and understanding them at a fundamental level. Do you see anything um, coming up on the horizon that might change that, that might make it easier to uh, to actually, you know, write and understand the models at a, at a fundamental level? Hmm. It's tricky. I mean, in the end, uh, like with, with other machine learning methods, to really get deep into it, you do still need a lot of uh, very good math and engineering mm -hmm. skills. And, uh, you know, that still takes a lot of time. Uh, it's good if you're, you know, have physics background and you have applied math background and you can program very well. Uh, those are still relatively high hurdles to go 
uh, and really push uh, the boundaries of, of knowledge and, and in some sense engineering uh, forward with deep learning. <laughs> so I think that that boundary will still sort of be there. But again, uh, you have new places like the Singapore School of Management, uh, in particular here for the squad data set, which really weren't on the map uh, when it comes to deep learning. But in, in this particular competition, they've really done phenomenally well. They also use a type of LSTM framework. And again, you know, that that allowed them to quickly uh, quickly get in there and uh, and do some really interesting research. Mm-hmm. So, Richard, um, one of the things that's interesting, I, I read the uh, squad paper a while back. Uh, so so really, the, the first squad paper was uh, pulling together this data set, right? So uh, it's it, it was based off of uh, Wikipedia and crowdsourced workers. Is that right? Yeah, and I, I love I love the work, and and it really can't be uh, stressed enough how important the people are who actually spend that time and create those new data sets. Uh, so you know, like ImageNet had such a profound impact uh, on on the computer vision uh, field, and I think good NLP data sets also have a profound impact on on the field of NLP. So how does now that you're at Salesforce? How are you thinking about data sets and, and building data sets for the research problems that you're tackling? Because there's external data sets, but in the world of text, it's pretty limited, right? So Google Google has some data sets that they created that are a little uh, opaque. Um, and then, you know, there's Wikipedia, there's uh, Common Crawl, which I, I worked with Stephen Meredith, you mentioned uh, back in the day on that. But it feels like there isn't really a, a a lot of great state-of-the-art, uh, commonly accessible data sets for text. Is that is that match what you're seeing? It, there aren't. There aren't. So there are some really good ones in machine translation because we can use human uh, labor that was done anyway, uh, just for the benefit of other humans uh, to train and collect uh, machine translation data. Uh, so because of the European Union, the Canadian uh, sort of being Canada being bilingual, you have uh, really great French, German um, bilingual data sets. And with the European Union, of course, you have even more languages uh, and uh, the European Parliament can't really meet unless uh, the, <laughs> the, all the translators are there and are willing, willing to translate. And so uh, those, are, those are good examples uh, of how we collect data sets in an enterprise, uh, in the enterprise world in general. So for instance, if you try to tr- train a bot or train a system to automatically answer emails, it's really great if you have kept track of how you answered emails beforehand and you can use the data that was just created uh, naturally from the past to now train those new systems. And so data sets are super important. They're important in enterprise, in the enterprise world and in a consumer world, whenever you have AI, it always starts with a data set and having it properly collected, sometimes cleaned. Uh, ideally, you can deal with the noisy kinds of data sets that, that are really out there. And it's also true for, for research. Now, sometimes companies like Google or Facebook, they can't upload the most exciting data sets they have, where they train the most interesting models, the ones with the most revenue, like advertisement. Uh, kinds of data sets because you know it's actually private data, right? I wouldn't want my Gmail uh, emails to actually end up in some public data set. Um, and so, so sometimes it makes sense uh, whenever it's public and it's online, and you know Wikipedia, for instance. Then that's actually a good basis, and you can create very valuable data sets just by labeling, for instance, in the case of Squad, Wikipedia, 
and mm -hmm. answering specific questions and, and mark out where exactly the answer is. Or in the case of Stephen uh, on his Pointer Sentinel uh, paper, where he basically had a better pre-processed version uh, of Wikipedia for language modeling, trying to predict the next words uh, and showing how you can use pointers and how that improves sequence models. And so when, when you use Wikipedia data, do you uh, encounter any problems having to do with the fact that Wikipedia is written in a way that uh, people don't commonly you know, uh, uh, use to communicate? It's, right, it's a very formal kind of language that you find in an encyclopedia compared to what you would find in an email or or text exchange or something like that. Um, it, do you have to make adjustments or do you bootstrap sort of? That is definitely a problem. You're right. Uh, I think, so for instance, when we train our word vectors, uh, Jeffrey Pennington's project on glove uh, word vectors, uh, we also provided one that was trained on tweets uh, to, to, off to offset that. That being said, for a lot of intrinsic evaluations, Wikipedia often gives a very large boost. It will take uh, a lot of a lot more news, for instance, and news texts to get to the same uh, sort of good evaluation metrics um, that you would get uh, from training on a relatively uh, small, at least in comparison, Wikipedia data set. Now, what I think we do observe with all of these is that all these systems are very dependent on the kind of training data that they have. And that, again, uh, boils down to moving away from single task, single data set kinds of learning to a multitask setting where you have a single model that keeps having to do more tasks. And this is, I think, the next frontier for deep learning. And that's sort of a uh, shameless bug here. Another paper from Kazuma, one of our interns, uh, who provides a first example of an architecture that keeps growing, but keeps jointly learning uh, multiple different tasks. And we actually show that sometimes even higher level tasks can improve lower level sort of syntactic tasks, like simple things like part of speech tagging, uh, as you train them all jointly. And I think that's really the future. And that's the only way we can get out of this local optima that we often uh, find ourselves in when it comes to model development and training specific models on specific data sets. It's really keep adding more data sets to your single model and see when they break. And what we found is they actually do break pretty quickly. It's mm -hmm. very hard to train a single model to do many different kinds of things. There's something interesting that you're hitting on, which as somebody interested in deep learning and, and wanting to see this uh, progress, it's really appealing to imagine things getting to the point where you have models. Like right now, most models are built and trained and designed and architected and then deployed. And there's few examples of learning online uh, and even deeper, what it, what it sounds like you're describing is where they're actually adjusting and changing even their architecture, right, um, in response to what they're learning. And um, so the, the pros of that would be amazing, um, where you have this resilient AI that's, that's getting better and learning new skills, almost, almost human-like or childlike. The downside in practice with things that start to, to touch on that is that they're mostly built through user data. And like you said, um, on Twitter, things can go very, very badly. You know, how, how do you, in practice, how would you think about, like, say, in, a, in an application at Salesforce or at Google, where you are training on conversations, how do you prevent the AI from saying something offensive, for example? Well, I guess there's, uh, in that particular example of a certain uh, bot we don't want to name right now, um, they had a very simple attack vector, which is, repeat after me, and then they would repeat um, <laughs> after right. the person. So so you have to be a little, uh, little better than that so to not be easily attacked. But you're right. I think um, 
it is actually a pretty fundamental problem. As AI comes more and more into our daily lives, uh, we have to be very conscious uh, and actually have, unfortunately, that is starting now, parts of like people in the community are starting to think about that. How do we prevent um, sort of, in the simplest case, things like semantic drift in models that always continue to learn. And that's something that you see a lot when, when systems go unchecked. Um, they often drift semantically, like all birds fly, but then you see a penguin and, you know, the penguin doesn't fly and then the penguin swims. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, like all birds swim, fly and scuba dive and whatnot. And like, you know, they, it doesn't quite work. On a more serious note, because these systems are so dependent on the training data, if the training data has a lot of bias, the systems will have a lot of bias. And we don't want them to have that bias. Uh, we want uh, to have machine learning systems uh, that don't exhibit uh, some of uh, the, the unpleasant biases that some humans have. <laughs> and, so, and I think that that comes also uh, through in conversations where hopefully we can eventually have, have systems that, that show no bias. This is a subject that Pete and I have been talking about a lot recently is kind of, um, you know, what what happens as we begin to get AI generated content, uh, things like news articles, but also you can imagine books or, or, or movies that are increasingly tweaked. And, um, and if you optimize as any news site or, or social network does on engagement, uh, then you, <laughs> you wind up, you know, generating uh, content that's, that's skewed in some way in order to sort of please and engage the reader. So you can, it's not only like the training uh, data, it's also kind of the, you know, the optimization. The incentive structure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, and I think, so maybe it's because I'm, I'm German, but like I do think regulation sometimes helps. There are certain things where it doesn't make sense to have completely unregulated uh, markets or something. Um, and, and likewise, uh, completely unregulated AI systems. I love AI. But um, it's hard for AI to do all the things that, that humans can still do. And for instance, properly vetting and verifying news and having journalistic integrity and journalistic standards uh, is something that you sh certainly shouldn't yet give into the hands of AI and let AI sort of run rampant uh, and, and optimizing certain metrics. Yeah. A AI with prop profit motive can be tricky. <laughs> that's right. And, and, you know, that's like even in the simple things, uh, you, you don't even need to have uh, this, this sort of general intelligence, which we're very far away from. And, and fortunately, it's not, not a subject of this, this conversation because it's not really that necessary. But you can see how simple things like credit scoring algorithms that use machine learning or, you know, optimizing for, for clicks uh, how that already can be problematic. And so it's mm -hmm. something that we as a community should think about, but also really the people that use the algorithms. In the end, a lot of the actual research community builds very fundamental basic building blocks, right? Somebody who, you know, like when Jürgen Schmidhuber and his student Hochheiter uh, were invented the LSTM, they weren't thinking about how that might change social media uh, and, and, you know, <laughs> clicks in many years down the line. And neither is it their fault that LSTMs might eventually be used for that, right? Mm -hmm. So, we have to we have to separate out sort of fundamental research uh, from how it's applied. And when when it gets applied and it touches human lives, it makes sense to have certain regulatory bodies, at least I think, uh, to 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 help steer it in the right direction. We do that in medicine with the FDA. We do that uh, with the Department of Transportation for self-driving cars, and likewise in, in military applications or even uh, news kinds of things. It, it would make sense to think about those issues. 
before, it feels like regulation is almost always going to be lagging. The It's the people on the front lines who have to think about being careful about how they build things to avoid, uh, usually to avoid a black eye, but in worst cases, you know, to avoid, avoid some kind of disaster with uh, the code that you write. Um, so in the case of deep learning, it's interesting, and it's specifically the kind of stuff that you're, you're in, interested in, which is a, a passion of mine as well, which is like um, knowledge bases and, and question answering. It feels like there's a challenge where to get a good enough data set, a large enough data set, you need a lot of data uh, to train these models. Um, but then you're looking at a lot of different conversations. So how do you, like in an application, so let's say you're building a question answering system. Um, how do you, you know, for customer support, if it has access to customer data, how do you, how do you think about avoiding bleeding over information from conversations that shouldn't be shared, for example? Right. Uh, I think there's, there's sort of two issues. One is the inter-customer. Well, so customer actually in the Salesforce context is, uh, is somewhat ambiguous because we're kind of recursive because Salesforce is a B2B company, right? We provide CRMs to other companies and those are our customers, but then all of our customers have their own customers. Mm-hmm. So the, let's call them end consumers of, of our customers' products. And so uh, you have, and so that because of that, we might actually encounter both of those issues. What if you have two customers and they both use your product and you don't want them uh, to benefit from each other's conversation, but then we also have customers and you don't want to have that across uh, whole uh, industries and, and inside an industry. So the, fir- the second one is actually somewhat easy because our default is we would never... Uh, allow that to happen right now uh any kind of global model we would have would come from public data like trailhead so which is sort of a teaching public teaching uh website that that we have here at, at salesforce and then inside a company that that's actually an interesting question it hasn't it hasn't come up uh, many times when we work in service it's just everybody wants to have better service and it's not usually a differentiator i think if you have something like sales it might be different right you wouldn't want like if you have a qa system which I don't, it's a little harder to think about what exactly a QA system for sales would do, though there's, I can certainly come up with some ideas. Um, but uh, there, you wouldn't want your competitors to have their sales uh, improved or maybe be able to sneak out some information about who you're talking to based on you know, answering and triggering certain kinds of questions. <laughs> so there are certain kinds of attack vectors uh, that you have to be very cognizant about. Um, I think in service, it's much less common to worry about that. Uh, in mm-hmm. many more cases, you have a certain problem you want the solution uh, to be really... What, what do you think are the big unsolved problems that are getting you excited right now? Uh, the biggest one is joint many task learning uh, and seeing everything as a QA problem and uh, figuring out a single QA model that can do simple things uh, that require only the inputs, like machine translation, where if you know the sentence and you know how to translate it, you're mostly good. There are other things like question answering, where you may have to reason over not just the current inputs, but the rest of the world and some complex world state. Uh, There are things like summarization, where you need to be able to summarize what's important. But of course, what's important is kind of a tricky uh, notion also. And we have all these different problems, and we're currently don't have we currently don't have models that can do those kinds of complex tasks all in a single model so that's i think what what excites me the most and that kind of formulation actually when you think about it more deeply it touches 
basically on all the hard things in machine learning in general. Skewed data sets. What if one of your tasks has millions and millions of examples and then another one only has a thousand? for 10,000. Mm -hmm. uh, then you have this cute data set problem for which, unfortunately, there's still no really good definitive solution for. Uh, then you have uh, transfer learning, which you would hope is always happening. But when tasks aren't super related, uh, you might actually also have so-called catastrophic forgetting when you train hmm. tests uh, joint, uh, sequentially or catastrophic interference it's not always catastrophic, but it usually hurts a little bit if you try to train a single model on two different tasks, right? Because now the output space is larger, so it's just easier to make potential confusions and misclassifications. And, and so on. I could go on for a while. There, there are a <laughs> lot of interesting sub-problems uh, that that kind of research direction uh, tackles. One problem that I'm always interested in, which isn't a classical kind of machine learning problem uh, like the ones that you've outlined, but I'd love your thoughts on it, is, is how to make... Uh, you know the models more uh, more sort of intuitable. Like the one of the big problems uh, that that you encounter in understanding them, and especially that that would come up if we brought about some sort of regulation of AI, is that it's very difficult for a human to read these models and anticipate how they'll uh, behave, right? And sort of understand them at, at the fundamental level. And you obviously can't just read giant panels of coefficients and figure out. What they're going to do, and and it's even in some cases difficult to diagnose things uh, in hindsight, right? And figure out why a system gave you a particular kind of output. Do you see any uh, any progress in sort of making these these models more transparent and and easier to uh, to anticipate? So it's a good question to to bring us back to some of the more applied things, which I which I do care about a lot too. So I do think we're actually getting better at uh, understanding the models, so you mm. can you know, sort of back propagate and find the images that most trigger, for instance, a certain higher level neuron in a convolutional neural network. Uh, so that's one way you can optimize over the images uh, to, to find the ones that activate certain things, uh, certain uh, neurons most. Uh, you can also look at attention scores now. A lot of these models uh, of, of the latest uh, deep learning sort of generation have uh, attention scores. And those attention scores are often surprisingly intuitive. Uh, we have this model on visual question answering, and you know you ask like, what's the pattern on the cat's tail? Mm -hmm. And you actually see the model focusing on that tail, mm. uh, or um, you know what's the color of the bananas? It looks at the bananas, sees that are actually still not ripe, and says green. Uh, it, it's kind of incredible. So I think attention scores are one way to help us with some of the interpretability of the models. Then you have. I think the, the QRNN actually is an interesting new development on that front too because uh, the features, at least like the temporal features and temporal dimension, they're actually independent of each other. And we have this um, in our blog post, this interactive visualization. You really see how certain neurons just turn off very obviously when the sentiment, for instance, of the longer document changes. So they're, they're little, they seem a little more interpretable to me than a lot of other uh, deep learning models. Hmm. That being said, there, I think, are some inherent limits uh, where it will be hard to really say why exactly a neural network makes a certain classification. In some cases, because making that distinction is just inherently complex. There is, you know, especially for images, sometimes speech, mm -hmm. but eventually I think for more complex text questions too, it will be harder and harder to say, oh, it's because of that word, right? For sentiment, we can do it. Oh, because of that word. But if you say, oh, this was like a typical Nicolas Cage movie, mm -hmm. then it's actually a little harder. <laughs> right? And it kind of depends on, you know, you look at the general, like, 
reviews that those movies get. And then, you know, it's like some complex reasoning and world knowledge. And it will be harder and harder to really say it's because of that single word or those phrases, uh, you know, that the model made that final classification. And so I think sometimes, it, it you know, obviously we would all like more interpretable models. Mm -hmm. And I think we are making progress in deep learning with attention scores, with analyses and understanding deep learning models better, both mathematically, but also intuitively, and uh, also from an engineering perspective. But I think sometimes people overestimate the importance of interpretability. Uh, and we can go to two very, very important uh, general areas of that, finance and medicine, mm -hmm. right? And if I ever, if you ever had the choice between an interpretable model that works slightly worse and a deep learning model which works <laughs> better but you can't interpret it, well, I, I find it hard to find uh, examples where I'd rather take the less accurate but more interpretive model, right? right? Like, oh, you kill 10 people more in your system, but I know exactly why they're dead. Mm -hmm. Or, <laughs> oh, you lost $10 million instead of making $5 million, but I can tell you why I lost the money. It's right, like, right, right. There are a lot of cases where in the end you really want to have the most accurate model. So fortunately, I think the theory community uh, and visualization community and so on is also seeing all this amazing impact that deep learning has. And I think we're making a lot of progress, both on the interpretability without, uh, without making any um, sort of trade-offs uh, with accuracy there. Yeah, that's really uh, a, a great way of framing it. I think, um, yeah, so f it's interesting. Finance isn't something we've talked a lot about on this podcast, but it's a great example. Also, bringing it full circle, we started talking about bots a little bit. That's a universe where you have bots interacting with bots and um, making decisions, probably the majority of decisions now to make money, right? And have you know making financial trades uh, based on input data. Yeah, book, booking airline reservations is an example that uh, that you mentioned earlier in this uh, episode. Yeah. So how how do you think you know? Give it, we've talked about a lot of different topics, going kind of deep and and, and wide. Do you think like this wave of um, you know chatbots and and conversational agents? How far off do you think these are from being practical? Um, you know, for business applications. So I think. I think the right approach that you often see in new AI applications is that you kind of fake it until you make it. <laughs> and let me explain what I mean by this. You basically want to have a human do a certain task, and that's sort of the part where you're faking it. And you want the human to basically do it, and you get better and better, and you take that input that humans have, and you get smarter and smarter in your AI system, and eventually you can start improving that human, and you can make, uh, you know, like simple questions you can take out of the whole chain, you can just automatically and very quickly answer, making the experience better and more personalized and faster, you know, in terms of turnaround time uh, for, for the customer or the person who wants to interact uh, with, the, with the bot. And then I think over time, we will just see more and more of those things get automated to a degree where you can then, as uh, the backend person, really focus on adding a personal touch to a customer conversation or tackling really only the very hard cases where, oh, you know, it's like somebody has some crazy router problem and now you have to parse the log files uh, of the router mm -hmm. and you have to, you know, go in and maybe even just physically fix something and, and so on, understand the pictures, though I think there will be interesting stuff, of course, on, on understanding images for service uh, use cases too. But basically tackling the harder problems that require more complex reasoning and actually are probably eventually also more interesting uh, to work with rather than, oh, I forgot my 
my password. So I think in general in the bot world, the biggest application domain that I see is in service. It's really just you have a specific question, mm-hmm. you have you want to get the answer, and the faster you get the answer, the happier you will be. And then there are some other fun applications, you know, in like marketing where you might want to find out about stuff and and get maybe a helping hand when it comes to various kinds of purchasing decisions that you want to make. And I think there's also room for that. And you can often gear those conversations uh, relatively well with some rules. You might not need to be as broad. And then I think what's lastly interesting is that eventually most companies might want to have sort of a base bot that just uh, looks at all the website information that companies already provide, all the complex FAQs and knowledge bases and so on, and allows you to just have sort of the baseline questions always be answered from that that you don't have to train much on. Another one that this touches on, uh, another topic, uh, if you think about that base bot idea applied to external information for like marketing or, or sales or customer research, it could get pretty interesting. But then another discussion that we've been having on Twitter, a bunch of folks, is around the uh, the kind of fake news controversy. And it touches on a few different machine learning topics related to like Facebook and how, you know, how algorithmically they're processing articles and, and information that's shared. Um, it's probably one of the, the hottest one of the topic in, uh, in NLP right now. Yeah, hot, it's the hottest topic. But it's interesting because if you think about it, this is a related uh, problem which is if I have a closed domain of trusted content from my company, that's one thing to say, these are the facts, this is the answer. Even there, it can be hard because some of those could be old and out-of-date answers. So the idea of truth of those facts and you know, the most re- it may even not be the most recent one. Maybe the most recent answer is wrong. So are you thinking about adding like some notion of the veracity of these derived facts in the knowledge base? So like you said, uh, in the service case, it comes up slightly less often. We kind of assume that the company, that the data that companies give us is the ground truth that they want us to be able to deal with. I think in in the general news case, it's it's a very interesting problem. I love AI, but we also have to be aware of certain limitations that we still have in AI. I think to have a perfect bot that would just be able to verify any kind of new incoming fact uh, from arbitrary sources and then just be able to automatically filter it is somewhat a dangerous notion. Uh, and I do think, again, journalistic integrity, journalistic standards uh, are and, and humans in the loop are the right solutions solution there. And this is what what I said in the argument, right? Oftentimes, machine learning is very good when you have training data. But the whole notion of news is that it's not out there yet. And nobody Mm -hmm. should be able to verify the first time a new piece of news comes out in the world. Now, what I also mentioned and and didn't uh, get mentioned in the article is that, of course, you can classify opinions versus facts, right? Mm. And whether those facts are actually true or not might not even be as important as identifying whether somebody has a strong opinion that they're voicing in an article. And identifying opinions is actually much easier and can be done. And then, of course, if there's so much opinion in what's supposed to be a Mm. factual article, then you can identify those. And of course, you can keep track uh, historically of certain sources and and so on. So huh. there's a lot of things that you can do in a lot of places machine learning can help. Is it possible then to like take uh, you know an account of a single event? 
let's say, uh, you know, it's it's news, uh, you know, describing the uh, the reopening of the FBI investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails a couple of weeks ago, uh, and and sort of identify what is the mainstream, you know, opinion or bias, uh, and then identify like the difference between other news sources and their account of the same event and the mainstream, and sort of then identify, you know, the most extreme summaries of it. Yeah, I think there are actually some interesting uh, tools that people can use of looking at a certain topic and then seeing various different accounts of the same event. I think a lot of that can still be done uh, with with human supervision, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You could call this the uh, Rochamon algorithm, right? The same event <laughs> seen 20 different ways. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, you have the same, uh, you know, with something like that, you have like the New York Times and Washington Post writing you know, FBI director sends letter to Congress announcing uh, further investigation of emails related to Hillary Clinton or something. And then on right-wing news sites, you had headlines that were like, you know, FBI says Clinton may be guilty after all or something like that. You know, and, and that's that's not even as extreme as you can imagine them getting. But you sort of like, you know, maybe you could let these things through, but with a flag that's like, hey, you know, if you're reading this, you're living in your own world, <laughs> basically. <laughs> So there are some linguistic indicators uh, for, you know, you mentioned maybe, right? Maybe mm-hmm. is, is not an ideal world uh, in, in a new source. And, and yeah, so, so you're right. Huh. Um, I think there are, some things can be done to help give people hints uh, about what's opinion and what is fact. So Richard, it's been a pleasure having you on to talk about the uh, future of, of AI. This is fantastically consequential stuff. If listeners uh, want to find you, where should they look? Uh, thanks, thanks for having me. Is phenomenally uh, well, well uh, thought out questions that you had to you uh, and feed. Um, it's great to be here with you. I'm on Twitter, Richard Socher uh, is my my handle, just first name last name, and uh, I, I think it's a really exciting time around AI. I'm glad you're doing this outreach uh, to the community. Um, if people want to chat chat further, I'll be at uh, the NIPS conference, Neural Information Processing Systems um, in, in Barcelona this year. And if you want to join our team, we're, we're hiring uh, a lot. We want to grow our AI team a lot too. And it's a truly exciting time to join the team. Excellent. Thanks so much, Richard. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the O'Reilly Bots podcast. Remember to sign up for O'Reilly's AI newsletter by going to O'Reilly.com slash bots and also take a look at how to watch the videos from the O'Reilly Bot Day program on that site as well. We hope you all are enjoying listening to the Bots podcast as much as Pete and I enjoy making it. If you do enjoy it, be sure to rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have ideas or just want to get in touch, reach out to either one of us on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. For the O'Reilly Bots Podcast, I'm John Bruner. And I'm Pete Skamarok. <laughs>